Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. We are going to have scripture reading this morning, and I have a couple of volunteers. And so I'm going to invite them to come. We're going to be reading, so I invite you to go to your devices or Bibles and turn with me to Revelation chapter 4. We're going to go to Revelation chapter 5. And we're going to read a number of verses there. That's we're going to talk. We're right in there, following John to the heart of Jesus. Revelation chapter 4, Revelation chapter 5. And thank you for coming. They're right here. Revelation 4, 1 to 11. Sure. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it, and the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders, They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also, in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Revelation 5, 1 to 14. And then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. 
he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Well, the book of Revelation. Some things here I want to share this morning that even while sharing when you were just reading that last part, I just, I just wanted to lift my hands and worship the Lord. Did everything I could not to. Not that I wouldn't, but later. Thanks again, Christine, too, yeah, for sharing. Father, we just ask that you would help us to understand because, Lord, unless your spirit reveals it, we won't get it. We won't even begin. And even the begetting that you will give us, Lord, we know we see in the mirror darkly. One day face to face, one day clearly. Lord, reveal to us what we need to know. Nothing less, nothing more, we ask in your precious name. Amen. Following John to the heart of Jesus, the last of his writings that the inspired Holy Spirit spoke to John. I want to share from these two chapters. This is, again, if you're going to be disappointed if you want me to tell you about the end times events. Because I am focusing on Jesus. I am focusing on the first four to five words of the book of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm focusing on that. It's Jesus revealing himself. This is the, um, let me see, I think it's the third one, I, third or fourth, that I, third one, I believe, in Revelation. If you've missed the first couple or you want to, which I think they are key, to understand Revelation as a handbook of worship, they are in podcast form. You can go on our website, auroracornerstone.ca, and get it. If you go into the menu and sermons. I want to go back to the very first part of chapter 4 where it says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. Need to start there. After this I looked. It's important to remember that this chapter 4 follows chapter 3, chapter 3, chapter 2, were the seven letters. Seven letters that were dictated by Jesus to John. Remember that, by Jesus to John in a vision. 
Seven letters. John wrote it down. We have it today. These seven letters were dictated by Jesus, and they were to be sent to actual seven churches in Asia Minor. These places existed, and the churches are named after their cities. The significance that we ought not to lose in this is, remember that John, this is about A.D., A.D. 85, A.D. 90, somewhere in there. And the other apostles have been dead for a number of years. Most of them martyred. John has by far outlived them. He's virtually doubled the time in which they've been gone. He's banished, imprisoned on the island of Patmos. It's a prison rock. High security. Think of Alcatraz back in its day. He's banished to the rock prison of this island of Patmos, and it's there he has this vision. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, John says. And John had been responsible for decades as the, if you would, the general superintendent of those seven churches. These aren't just seven obscure churches. These are seven churches John had visited, seven churches John knew personally, and when the other apostles were gone, John had been in charge of them. He was the overseer. He had been, for years, the bishop of those seven churches. Remember that. So when we come to this little passage right here, I'm not horribly interested in just all details. I'm also equally interested in the heart of what's going on in this man, John. Because God is not just interested in the details of what you do. He's interested in your heart. He's interested in your feelings, your emotions. He is interested in all of you. And so John was responsible for all seven churches as overseer. And so when Jesus in these seven letters targeted five of the seven churches, saying they were in horrible disrepair, how do you think John felt? He has been for some time now on the island of Patmos, imprisoned. He cannot get off when he has this vision. And when Jesus reveals that, reveals that five out of the seven are in bad disrepair, it would have grieved John immensely. All the work he had given, the founding of those churches by the apostles, the evangelists that went and built on the foundations of those churches, the pastors that pastored in those churches, the congregants, the elders, the leadership, the deacons, those who served, those who were faithful, those who laid it on the line, and John himself, having poured himself to see the churches expand, and they had expanded. It had grown miraculously back in the day. But now here, years later, Jesus had just revealed to John, chapter 2, chapter 3, five of the seven were in really bad shape. I don't mean brick and mortar. I mean the people were abandoning God. And John's on an island. He can't do a thing about it. Can't do a thing about it. So we need to understand when he says those first two words, after that, everybody say after that. This is huge. After that, after the what? Chapter 2, chapter 3. After that, it's a mess. It's a mess. 
and his heart is broken. He has poured his life into this, and so have many, many others. After that, after he poured himself out for the work of God on behalf of others, it was coming unglued, falling apart right before his eyes, and he seemed so helpless. Let me just pause because this is not just a letter about John. This is a letter to us. That it really speaks to us that we have an after that. Where you have poured yourself out to maybe a ministry. Where you've given yourself, you have been faithful, you've prayed, you have served, you have time and time again, given of yourself, given of yourself. And then there comes a moment where it's like, and after that, you look back and you're going, it seems like it's just all unglued. Have you had it? Are you experiencing it? Can be the after that of your family. It can be the after that of when it comes to you've You've, you've been a faithful mom. You've been a faithful father. You raised your children. You brought them to church. You took them to children's church. You got them involved. You introduced them to young friends who would be a good influence on them. You did your best to shape your home life so that your children will, when they grow older, most naturally turn to Jesus. And some did. Maybe all of your children did. Maybe you poured yourself in, you gave of yourself. There was many things you could have done you didn't do for the sake of your kids, your family. But your kids grew up. They went into high school. They went into college. They went into university. They began their careers. They got a friend. They got some friends. They began to turn another direction. And you're experiencing it after that. Like John, you feel helpless. He looks back and it's like, what am I to do? I can't go and fix these churches. And to be honest, if he thought he could, he couldn't anyway. Many of these are beyond human intervention. You maybe had an after that on your marriage. Your marriage, you married a man who was a man of God. You married a woman who was a woman of God. And then they turned away from God. And you have an after that. What do you do with your after that? You see, those two words, we slip over them, but don't slip over them. John couldn't slip over them. After that, what? Chapter 2, chapter 3. After all this comes unglued and you feel helpless. Because I'm going to hazard a guess many of us here this morning have after that's. We're living in some after that's. After that. What do you do when you're in the after that? <laughs> you know, when I have after that's, because I do too. They're not just moments in time. They seem to never end. Sometimes the after that's just keep getting deeper. There's a song I will often sit at the keys or the guitar and I will, it's an old song, I will often begin, I just begin to sing this, I speak to myself. Some of you may know it, I'm not going to sing it, but when your enemies assail and your heart begins to fail, don't forget that God in heaven answers prayer. He will make a way for you. He will lead you safely through. So anybody know it? Take your burdens to the Lord and leave it there. And leave it there. Leave it there. Take your burdens to the Lord and leave it there. When you trust and never doubt, he will surely lead you out. So take your burdens to the Lord and leave it there.
So Revelation 4.1, after that, starts there. After that. What's about to unfold? Very interesting. After that, I continue on. Verse 1, after that, before me, was a door standing open in heaven. I want to take you to the second part. First, after that. Second, an open door. This is not just any door. This door is an invitation into the very Shekinah presence of God. Not a God, not a God in human form, the God of all creation, the God who spoke and galaxies formed, the God who formed with his very godly hands, dust, dirt, and made man. The God who breathed. We sang the song, breathe on us, breathe on us until you come. Continue to breathe life, God. That's the God. He says here, and after that I looked, and before me was a door standing open in heaven. The very presence of God. John is standing before an open door. The door is open. This is something John had ever only dreamed about. Let's remember this is John who walked for over three years with Jesus. He was the same John who ate with Jesus. The same John who saw miracles and performed miracles with Jesus. The same John who got food together. The same John who... uh, at the Last Supper, put his head on Jesus' breast. The same John who liked to get up and nestle near close to Jesus. He called himself the beloved disciple. He was the one Jesus loved, John referred to himself. The one Jesus loved. As if Jesus didn't love the others. But John liked to say, I'm, I'm, I think John thought he was his favorite. He was the Jesus pet. <laughs> and John here, now in this vision, he's before an open door And this is something he had never seen Jesus in this way before. He had seen Jesus when man ridiculed him. He had seen Jesus when people tried to kill him. He had seen Jesus when those who were religious tested him and tried to tempt him into sin. He had seen Jesus in all of that. He had seen Jesus be arrested. He had seen Jesus go to the cross. He had seen Jesus be spit on, his beard pulled, a crown put into his head. He had seen the blood flow from Jesus. He had been there. John was close to Jesus while Jesus hung on the cross. This is the same John who now before him, chapter 4, there's an open door. And in that is really a whole new world, a whole new universe. There is a door in. There's a door in. I'm going to pause frame here because... The invitation for him to write this is an invitation for you and I this morning. It's the door. There is a door in for us too. There's a door in to his presence. He has not closed himself off. Through Christ, the door is opened. So Wayne Lucas, there's a door in. Put your name there. There's a door in. If you choose not to go through that, don't call it on him. Don't blame him. That's yours. There's a door into his presence. You will enter as much as you are eager to do so. Seek and you will find. There's a door in. And John stood and behold the door into the throne room. And John was about to witness the spirit world, the horrible implications of sin and its judgment on mankind. 
John was about to witness over 6,000 years, over 6,000 years. We do not, the years have not yet finished. He witnesses over 6,000 years worth of judgment about to take place. He's about to witness. It is horrific in every regard. And he is about to witness the triumph of Christ. He's going to witness both ends of the spectrum of his emotions here. The horribleness of the consequence of sin and its judgment now. And the glory of what the reward looks like forever lasting to everlasting. And so there is John. I guess maybe the point maybe for us today is whatever you face, whatever is before you, God is opening a door. It's a door of opportunity for you and I to enter his presence. Praise God. So chapter four, verse one. After this, I looked and there before me, I want to pause those two words there before me. I need to stop. There before me, the King James says, behold. And IV says, there before me, two words. Verse two, at once I was in the spirit. And here it is again. And there before me, the same one, the Greek language. There before comes from two Greek words. The Greek words, more better translated, is to see. Now, it doesn't really flow well in our English language. It's always the challenge. After this, I looked and to see. Didn't really make a whole lot of sense. King James, to behold. Often we think of to see, you know, I, I, see, I see the bus going down the road. Uh, you know, I saw the guy on TV. He was wearing a blue suit and red tie. You know, I saw that. But this is, this is a different Greek combination. We often think of it just as an observation, but it's not an observation. So when we come to this part, after this I look, he didn't simply observe something. We have to understand the Greek here. It's important. It's like he said, oh, now I see. That's how it's expressed. Oh, now I see. Let me use an illustration. A number of years ago, we were down vacationing in Florida with our kids, and we were on the Atlantic side, the ocean side. And it was early in the morning. We knew there was going to be a rocket go off from Cape Canaveral. We we're a couple hours away, but you can still see it on a dark morning. And so we made effort to go to the water. It wasn't a lot of effort. It's a five-minute walk to the water. Went to the water, stood at the water. A bunch of people were surprised how many people standing along the water. Uh, it was like six in the morning. And we were looking over in the general, and do you see it? Do you see it? You know, and just... And then there was the moment where you saw the ball of fire going up. It's amazing. You saw the ball of fire. And it was, oh, now I see it. And everything stopped. Everybody stopped talking. It went dead quiet. As you watch for about 30 seconds, this thing take off. And, and to me, I, that's the, oh, now I see. I've been looking. Oh, now I see it. I see it now. Let me give another illustration. Have you ever stood before one of those pictures that at first appearance, it's just a bunch of squiggly lines? But after gazing at it for a while, the point is there's a car in there somewhere or a person in that picture. And at first it's just a bunch of squiggly lines, but you can't make anything. And so you have to look and you look and you look and you look, just squiggly lines, squiggly. And then all of a sudden your eyes readjust. And you have that moment where you say, oh, now I see. That's the expression. John is standing before this door. And he says, now I see. This is a guy who spent years with Jesus. Now I see. Something opened up that he had, 
he could never have comprehended or come close to comprehending. Oh, now I see it. John thought he knew the Lord, but when this door of God's revelation opened wide and the invitation to come inside, his first expression is this, oh, now I see it. And he gazed upon the almightiness of God. He gazed upon the immovable throne. He gazed upon the unshakable kingdom. He gazed upon 10,000 upon 10,000 angels. He gazed upon a sea of people. He gazed upon a splendor that your and my eye have never witnessed. Neither had his. We've never seen it. And in that moment, he says, now I see the expression. So here, I guess, maybe is the real question. I mean, what... What does he see? What is he beholding? The question is the invitation to come inside. The door is open. God wants to reveal his presence. It's another element of worship. We think we've been there, done it, and bought the t-shirt. Sometimes we, you know, I, I, don't, I don't enter into worship casually. At one time I did. I don't. Because if I'm going to, Come in and court the presence of God. I'm not going to casually come in there with my hands in my pocket and my timing. I come early. I come anticipating because he will not reveal himself if I don't. He reveals himself to the hungry. That's why many don't see him. That's why many don't see him. He's still, the door is there. But based on the level of hunger, will I see? Oh, now I see. There's moments and times, maybe you've had it, where you've been somewhere, maybe in church or in some activity, a concert, and then there's a moment where the Shekinah of God's presence, and then it's like, oh, now I see. Something breaks through. It's a moment where there's a revelation of him. And often in those moments, words will fail you because soon as you try to describe it, you've just minimized what you just beheld. Now I see it. After that, now I see. Brings me to the third part of this passage. Is when we get over to chapter 5. Book of Revelation chapter 5. It's the prayers of the saints. And the prayers of the saints are collected. The picture that John sees is a bowl. It's how he describes it. It's collected in a bowl. He calls it the bowl of incense. The incense is referred to at the prayers. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, and they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God's person for every tribe and language and people and nation. I want to talk here a second about chapter 5, the scrolls. Again, we're not doing a verse by verse here. I'm hitting on some key things. I think key things. The scrolls in the original language, Greek, biblion. Biblion, scrolls. We, Bible, Bible, we get the word Bible from that. Biblion, Biblio, Bible. It's the scrolls. We call it the 66 books, the scrolls. Bible writing was done on a sheet of papyrus. The papyrus was about eight inches wide, about 10 inches high. And there were two columns on each papyrus. In this case, they were on both sides of the papyrus. Uh, really interesting Bibles typically don't have them now, but I remember my father's Bible. He had a Bible, King James Version, and they, it was in print. It had the two scrolls, and it had or the two sides, two columns on each page with the concordance down in the middle. And I think they attempted when they wrote it, because I was just thinking of that when I was thinking of the scrolls, eight inches by ten inches, two columns, uh, 
was a scroll. And so what would happen was when the document was longer than one sheet, one sheet eight by ten, when the document was longer, such as the book of Revelation was longer than just one sheet, the book of Revelation actually would have taken 15 feet worth of scroll. 15 feet, imagine that. The book of John would have been 20 feet long scroll, end to end. They attached it, end to end. Scrolled, scroll, you scroll it up, roll it. So it would have went, book of Revelation's 15 feet long. If you had the book of Jude or the book of Philemon in the New Testament, that would have been like one sheet, little tiny scroll. Sheets were attached to each other and they were rolled up, scrolled up for storage. They're called scrolls. In Roman time, when the time in which they were written, in this Roman time, the book of Revelation, when a person prepared their last will and testament. Now, I'm going to just step off this just for a second. I, invite, I encourage every person to have for yourself a last will and testament. I hope you do. Um, if you don't, you should seriously consider doing it and doing it soon. Don't anticipate you're going to live to 100. So uh, do it and do it soon. The last will and testament. I think it is important. I think it's a good steward of what God has given you so that it can be managed well. So anyway, back to this. A scroll, the purpose of the book, the book of Revelation, starting at chapter 4, chapter 5, through to chapter 18, is the last will and testament. That's what it is. It's the last will and testament. It's God's will. And so, because he unrolled the scroll, and I'm going to explain why we come to this conclusion. The wills done back at that time, Roman times, when you prepared your will, it required seven witnesses. This is people of affluence. People of affluence that were required, when you prepared your will, seven witnesses to attest to your will, and each witness needed to sign the will. How they signed it, they didn't get a pen or, you know, a quill and sign it. No, they signed it with a seal. So they had some object that would sign it, seven witnesses, seven seals. So it was the last will. So this is the last will. So when you talk about the unrolling of the seals, it's the unrolling of a will. It's God's will. And there are seven seals. That was common. Seven. If you were back then, you wouldn't have thought twice of this. Seven seals. There would require seven witnesses. Now today, typically it's two witnesses. My will has two witnesses to it. Then seven, seven witnesses. Wax would be poured on the place where it was sealed. And then the witnesses would sign the place where the seal was, attesting that they, they witnessed the will. So when a person died back then, and a will was to be executed, the seals could only be broken by the original witnesses. You had to go find them. If they were dead, you had to find the one who was bequeathed behind them. Only they could open the seals. You following with me here? You're going to understand the seals a bit better. So a person died. It required the witnesses to come back and to break their own seal to open so you could find out what was in the will. Otherwise, the will remains closed and nobody, nobody benefits from that. There's no closure as long as that will remains closed. So after the person's death, Seven witnesses got back, and one after the other, you open it up, and then the scroll would be on, and then you would read 
the will and last testament. Revelation chapter 5, this is one of those scrolls. This is one of those scrolls. This scroll here unfolds. The whole of everything between that's in the scroll happens between chapter 5 to chapter 18 of the book of Revelation. It's the judgment of God. I remember years ago somebody telling me this, and I've never forgotten, I've, I've told it probably a hundred times since, that when we have our actions, you know how we say to our children, every action, every behavior has a consequence. We, we try to tell our children, so if you have good behavior, there'll be good consequences. You have bad behavior, bad consequence. We, we try to tell them that. That is good teaching, really good teaching. But here's the problem when it comes to our faith. Because sometimes when we have bad behaviors, matter of fact, most of the time, when we sin against God, it's like nothing happens. It's like there's no consequence. I can sin. At first, we thought he was going to, you know, blast us. But it didn't happen. And we sin again, it didn't happen. Sin again. And then after a while, we begin to believe that there are no consequences for our actions. Here was what was told me. Never confuse delayed judgment with dismissed judgment. Don't believe it's dismissed. It's merely delayed. Because God says, I am merciful, not willing that any should perish right now. Grace means he pulls it back. He's the just judge. He can do whatever he wants. But he is still the judge, and he will still have justice. So whatever you think has been unjust, it has justice. Don't mistake delayed judgment with dismissed judgment. And so people live lives as if it's dismissed. It's not dismissed. It's coming. It's delayed. It's delayed. If you, if you doubt this, begin to read from First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. You will read the story of the rise and fall of evil and good, evil and good, evil and good, and then it gets to the end, and even though there's good and good, they try to do good, God says, there's too much been accumulated. Justice, judgment is coming. And no matter what they did, judgment had to come. And we come to the point in Revelation where in the last will, there comes a point where judgment is met out because Grace, the era that you and I are living in right now, November the 6th, 2022, we are living in an era of grace, the dispensation of God's grace. It will come to an end. Predicted as every other prediction has come true. It will come to an end. And then judgment, and then judgment. Now understand, this is not, this is not retaliatory judgment. Retaliatory judgment means I'm going to get you for vengeance is mine. Now, the Lord did say vengeance, but he means judgment is mine. We often look at judgment like I'm going to get even with you. God never gets even. God never gets even. It's retributive judgment. In other words, if you play with fire, you will what? You'll get burned. So if you sin, you will be judged. It's the consequence. It's not God trying to get even with you. And so sometimes we've grown up like, you know, the, God's going to get you. And I, I, I never do that. Never do that. Because you make God as an unrighteous judge. He is a righteous judge. But when we say, God's going to get you, then we look at him as the judge is waiting for you to slip up so he can smack you. But he doesn't do that. He waits. His mercy waits. And he waits. And he beckons you. He puts people into your path. He brings you into the church. He gives you the word. He does so much to call you back. That's the God we serve, never mistaken. 
And when we do that other stuff, we just malign who he is. That's not my God. That's not the God of the Bible. So, we have the last will. And from chapter 5 to chapter 18 is all the judgments. All the judgments. And it's locked up in a scroll. Here's the problem. Chapter 5, it's locked up in a scroll. It's locked up in a scroll. And at the end of the judgment, at the end of the judgment is eternal life and life evermore. It's heaven. It's all the things he begin to describe chapter 19, chapter 20, chapter 21, chapter 22. We sang about it, the spirit and the bride. That's chapter 21 and chapter 22 of Revelation. So I wanted us to do two or three weeks worth of it. We'll do it again next week. Chapter 21, chapter 22, where it's just a glorious thing. But we can't get there if we don't have the judgment from chapter five to chapter 18. Judgment has to happen first. And here's the problem. It's all sealed up in the last will and testament, and no one is worthy to break the seal. And until the seal is broken, you can't get to the end. You're locked in to hell here on earth. You're locked in to the repeating cycles that you and I have watched, and yet the days to come have watched. And so there's the problem that John was experiencing. As John looks at this, he comes to chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Remember? It's a testament. It's a will. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice. Here's the angel. Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? That's the question of the day. Who is worthy? Who's worthy? Well, um, Judgment is held inside this scroll, and John is broken. I think maybe we get a, a picture of, of, of the, the pain of John as he looks at this, and he, he realizes that there cannot be fulfillment if nobody is worthy to open the scrolls. It's held. Do you get the picture also? It's in the right hand of God. God continues to hold. I, I saw something else in this too. It's held in the right hand of God. Let's realize that the worst of the curse has been restrained because it's still in his right hand. Because if, the, if, if we truly got what we deserved, we wouldn't be here. Isaiah the prophet says, Hell, uh, hills melt like wax in the presence of the Lord. Guess what would happen to flesh and blood? He still holds it in his right hand. The picture of, he, of he's holding it. And John there's a sense of absolute horror knowing that that has to be unscrolled. But the seven seals keep it scrolled and nobody's worthy because God's the one who wrote it. And at the same time, he realizes, but at the same, God still has it in his hand. God still controls the script. I want to just pause again because that brings comfort to me. Whatever I face, whatever I go through, let us remember God still holds your script. What you thought was the worst was not the worst. What you thought was hell and there couldn't get worse than that, it's not true. God still holds. He still holds your future. You know the, the expression, the game's not over till the game's over. And it's not over yet. He still holds that. The picture here is him holding it at the right hand. It's, things are not out of control. When we, you know, prime minister, presidents, World affairs, not out of control. God holds it in his hand. He is in control. 
of what's happening in that will. Note, because the scroll is in his hand, the curse, the curse is worse, is still restrained. The horror breaking out in the book of Revelation could have happened long ago. God is still restraining it. So why such concern? Why such pain? Well, it's lest the scroll remain sealed. Verse 3 and 4. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And John says, I wept and wept because no one was found worthy. Does, do you get the impression John had an idea what was inside that scroll? He knew it was inside. Otherwise, why would he weep? He knew inside that scroll the implications that there can be no rest, there can be no peace, there can be no, no life without tears, no life without death. Curse could not be lifted. The curse would remain as long as that scroll and the seals remain unbroken. And so when the cry went out, no one in heaven, no one on earth, no one under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside, and John just burst out and he writes it down. I burst out and I began to weep and I wept and I wept and I wept. He was undone. Because he knew that if the scroll could not be unsealed, this would remain. Yet, if the scroll, scroll could be unsealed, all this would be different. For until that could happen, hell will continue to have its way. Brings me to my last point. The Lamb of God is worthy. Verse 5. Do not weep. See, the Lion of the tribe of Judah... The root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Did you see how Jesus is described? He's described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is that that has come to break what oppresses. He has come that which we have never known before. Jesus alone breaks the seal. And then John sees something else, although not the same, similar. He says, and now I see something, verse 6. I see a lamb. So he starts verse 5. I see the lion. Then verse 6. I see a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. Literally translated, a lamb bearing the marks of recent slaughter. That's how John describes it. A lamb bearing the marks of recent slaughter. John, remember, had last seen Jesus in person decades before. But when he walks through that door into the presence of God in his Shekinah glory, he stepped into eternity, into a portal outside of time that you and I are locked into. And he saw the Lamb's victory achieved through the sacrifice of the cross. Note what he said. I saw the Lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the... He saw the Lamb having been crucified and risen. The Lamb having been crucified and risen. He saw the Lamb's victory through the achievement of the sacrifice of the cross. And this brings me all the way back around to our beginning. Beloved, the cross of Christ breaks every curse. That's what John saw. The cross, I saw the lamb, and he is worthy to open the scrolls. That's why four weeks ago we began to sing that song, wanted it taught, Daniel's been teaching it, and he will in a few moments. Is he worthy? Is he worthy? We just sing that and... We don't realize. You realize the pain and perplexity around that moment. Because if that doesn't happen, if those seals are not opened, if there's one not worthy, then we never get out of this mess. We're locked in forever and ever.
but there is one worthy. John says, I saw him. He speaks of him. He saw a lamb bearing the marks of recent slaughter. He is worthy to open the scrolls. And then it opens. One after the other, he opens the scrolls. Jesus opens the scrolls. And yes, there's a lot of nasty going on. It's the judgment. Are we surprised? It's the judgment. But God is still in control for those who love him and who are called by his name. The cross of Christ has made it possible for the seals to be opened and the reinstatement of God's plan for our lives as if it was back at the beginning of the Garden of Eden. And because of the cross of Christ, our prayers are open. We get to that next part. The bowls of prayers then flip open at this point. The bowls of all the prayers of, of millennials of prayers get released and God's judgment come into effect after the prayers are released. Verse 8 pictures the bowls of prayers of the saints, yours and mine included, in the millions and tens of millions and hundreds of millions of prayers, rising up before the throne of God. And in chapter 8, when you get to chapter 8, because these prayers become poured out, something begins to happen in response as part of God's ultimate judgment. I want to just read that last part. Chapter 5. Verse 8, and when he had taken it, the four elders, creatures, okay, these, these are the scrolls. Uh, we go back to um, uh, where he says, who is worthy to break the scrolls? Verse 2, who is worthy? No one in heaven or on earth, no one is worthy. Then in verse 5, we read, the lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Six, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircling the four living creatures, the elders, the lamb, seven horns, seven eyes, seven spirits, all sent to the earth. He went and took the scroll from the hand of him who sat on the throne, and when he had taken it, here we are, verse 8, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the lamb, each one with a harp, and they we're holding a golden bowl full of incense. What's that? The prayers. All the prayers. Cumulate. All the prayers. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands, ten thousands times tens thousands. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. I mean, John is beside himself at this point. And in a loud voice, you imagine that? In a loud voice, he hears them. Worthy is the lamb. Echoes through the chambers. Who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength, honor, glory and praise Verse 13, then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Huh. What a beautiful picture of what is taking place before the lamb of God. He is worthy. Would you say it together with me? He is. Whatever you go through, whatever hell we see, whatever you think's the end of, 
Don't ever dismiss delayed judgment as being dismissed. Don't ever mistake that. He is worthy. He is the just judge. And it really brings us into the place, will you, will you open? Will you accept the invitation into that place? Even in your place of worship, would you accept that invitation to know him, to go deeper in him, that you would behold the lamb who sits before the throne? I long for the day. And I get a little bit of it when we worship here at church. But I also long for the day, and I know you do too, when we will join with the 10 by 10 by 10s and 10s of thousands. And with one voice echoing through the throne, worthy is the lamb who is slain. He is worthy of all praise. And you know, we will appreciate it in a whole new way, won't we? A whole new way of his glory and his, his majesty of all that he has done for us. Beloved, this morning, if you're here and you've not opened your heart to receive Jesus, you've not accepted what the lamb has done for you, do it. Don't wait. What are you waiting for? Don't wait. Don't put it off. Don't ever mistake delayed judgment for dismissed judgment. It's coming. You don't have to be at the other end of that. You could be at the place where you are part of the throng that are worshiping and praising his name and bringing glory to him. Thanks for listening to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Remember to subscribe. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit auroracornerstone.ca.